And if you have your Bibles, or whatever you use to follow our reading today, turn with me to James chapter 1, and we will start at verse 12 and go to verse 18. And our reading today, we're going to see that James encourages the reader and us. By the way, the Bible, when James wrote his epistle, he not only wrote to the Jewish scattered, persecuted believers, it was written to them, but it was written for us. So, in our reading today, James encourages us to patiently endure trials because there awaits those who patiently endure a crown of life. On the contrary, and this is important, if we don't endure trial, if we don't endure the trials and cave in under the pressure of a trial, we now begin to be in the grips of temptation to sin and to blame God for it. But James assures us that God is not the author of temptation, but of good and perfect gifts. We just sang, God is good. He's the author of good and perfect gifts. Please stand with me as we read our text today. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast on the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we're not here to just hear the word. We're here to do the word, as James tells us. Help us, God, to absorb your word into the depths of our hearts and to leave here not to just have information, but to leave here with a desire to please you, to do your will, to obey your will, and to leave here saying, what a great God we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Dr. Warren Wearsby said this, Our values determine our valuations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. Let me read read that again. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget about the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. And I would like to add to that. Failing to have a godly response to a trial will turn the trial that should have had a a positive effect on us into temptation to sin. 
at the proposition. If you don't respond with trust in God in your trial, you will be in the grips of temptation to sin. And that's what our text is saying tonight. Not John Verdi, but James. Three points I want to bring to your attention. Point one, you should patiently endure your trial. The implication is you're going to go through a trial. If you're a Christian, you're going to go through a trial. Or should I use the word plural, trials. Point two, you should never blame God for your temptation. And point three, you should not be deceived. Point one, you should patiently endure your trial. And the last time I spoke, which was two weeks ago, we looked at James 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I explained from the text how we could have joy in trials. I don't know how many of you remember that, but if you, even if you did a reading of first, uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, you could see you can have joy in trials. And we could see that in our trial, God is testing our faith, he's purifying our faith, and, and it produces something. It produces an, a perseverance, it produces a steadfastness. And the result of that is maturity. And then the second thing we learned two weeks ago is you can have wisdom in your trials. God doesn't just say, okay, get through your trial. No, he, he gives us wisdom to get through our trial. And all he asks of us is this, don't doubt. Ask God when you're going through a trial for wisdom, how to deal with the trial. And he says one thing, there is one condition, don't doubt. And then he, the third thing he said was, you can boast of your position in trial. In other words, whether you're rich or poor, the poor person in a trial should rejoice not in his poverty, but in the fact that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So what he's saying to them is, don't boast in your poverty, boast in your exaltation that God is raising you up. And for the rich person, he said, don't rejoice in your wealth but in your, your, your humiliation that you identify with the sufferings of Christ that you're rejected by the world and that you realize and identify with the poor person who you are no better than and today in our text James is still speaking of trials verse 12 again by the way trials are a difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ verse 12 again Blessed is the man who remains steadfast on the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now he starts off with blessed. It comes from a Greek word that means blessed, fortunate, happy. It carries the idea that a person is favored by God, even though they are suffering as they endure a trial. A person who is enduring a trial has this inner joy and peace that comes from being approved by God. When you're going through a trial, know if you're a Christian and you're walking through a trial, know that God is approving you. And we probably should avoid the translation happy. Even though a lot of translations have happy is the man. Because a person going through a trial may not be happy. No matter how they feel, if they endure, endure a trial, they can be sure that they have God's approval. They may not feel happy. I'm sure Jesus didn't feel happy when he was facing the cross. 
Any of us in our right minds don't feel happy when we're suffering, whether it's financial suffering or, or physical suffering, no matter what the suffering is, we don't feel happy, but we're approved by God. Now the unsafe cannot have that blessedness because they don't have the real hope of an expected end in their trial. As a Christian, we go through a trial, there's an expected end. As I spoke the last time, there's good things that are going to come out of that. Even though it's painful, good things are going to come out of that. But more importantly, the unsaved don't have the Holy Spirit living in them who alone can give that kind of intensity of blessedness. You know, James over here uses the same language uh, that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. I know the girls are studying the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, and so on and so forth. And James pronounces the same blessing for believers who endure their trial. Which, if a person does, by the way, as James says, you pass the test. If a Christian, as a Christian, I, I just really pray you get a hold of this truth in your heart because you can experience such joy and the favor of God in this life no matter how intense the trial is. And if as, as a Christian for 41 years, I, see that, I say that frequently, not to say how long I've been saved, but because I've been around the block and I've seen how Christians just don't have joy in trials. And they suffer sometimes needlessly. God wants you to have joy in trials. Once again, it doesn't necessarily mean an emotion of happiness. But underneath the pain is this joy that you can experience. But James is not only concerned about the blessedness in this life. James is really focusing on future blessedness. And the reason James gives that we should remain steadfast on the trial is you will, future, receive the crown of life. Crown here doesn't refer to a king's crown but an athletic crown that the winners received in an athletic contest in the Greco-Roman world. Today we have the Olympics, and we have, we have a gold medal, a silver medal, and a bronze medal. Well, back then, they had similar things, you know, Olympics, and they, they received a crown like a, that was like a wreath, like a, from a plant. And the winner was given that crown that looked like a wreath because of his persevering Victory, Not just victory, but his persevering victory. See, God, when you're going through a hard time, God says, persevere. Persevere. Go through it. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Even though the pain is horrible, I'm there. And there's an expected end. In an earthly competition... The rewards are perishable. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, Every athlete ex exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So in an earthly competition, the, the, the rewards are perishable. You know, once again, if you're in the Olympics, or if you did any kind of competition, you, re you know, when I, was, when I was young, I received a little trophy from my, um, my little league. But they're perishable. They perish. 
But rewards for the faithful Christian are imperishable. And James is encouraging us to persevere in the trials because at the end of the day, we will receive what he says is a crown of life. A more literal translation is a crown which is life. And what he's talking about here is eternal life. You will not only be blessed in this life, but pure, unadulterated blessedness without the pain of the trial in eternity. That speaks volumes to my heart. I don't know about you, but I, you know, when I go through a trial in this life, yeah, I can have the joy and the blessedness, but it's sometimes masked by the pain. Am I right? But when we're in heaven, it's going to be pure, unadulterated blessedness. Now focus on that rather than the pain of your trial in this life. Now we need to be careful that we understand that we don't get eternal life because of our steadfast or perseverance. But this steadfast or perseverance or endurance, whatever word is, every word you could use there, is the evidence of your salvation. Because Paul told the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He's not, James is not saying you're going to get the crown of life because you do this. You're going to endure your trial because you're saved. Steadfastness under trial is the result of your salvation. And also God promises the crown to those who love him. Again, this has to be viewed in the light of the rest of scripture. Brother Phil read it tonight. He didn't know I was preaching on this particular verse. 1 John 4.19 We loved, we love because he first loved us. The only reason a person can love God and his brother is because he first loved us. Do you know why you will endure a trial? Because you love God. Do you know why you love God? Because he loved you first. It's as simple as that. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And I love that scripture because it reminds me when I was a, before I was a believer, looking in hindsight at at my life before Christ, I was going like this to God. Even though I went to church every Sunday, I did all the Christian, all the Catholic things, what I had to do. But really, I was really shaking my fist in God. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Because a believer loves God, he and she, he or she will endure a painful trial and will receive the crown of life. I'm going to tell you a little story about Wilma. Wilma didn't get much of a head start in life. A bout with polio left her left leg crooked and her foot twisted inward, so she had to wear a leg brace. After seven years of painful therapy, she could walk without her braces. At age 12, Wilma tried out for the girls' basketball team, but she didn't make it. Determined, she practiced with a girlfriend and two boys every day. The next year, she made the team. When a college uh, track coach saw her during a game, he talked her into letting him train her as a runner. By age 14, she had outrun, outrun, outrun the fastest sprinters in the U.S. In 1956, Wilma made the U.S. Olympic team, but showed, showed poorly. That bit of disappointment motivated her to work harder for the 1960 Olympics in Rome. And there, and there William Rudolph won three gold medals, the most a woman had ever won. I mean, that is the kind of perseverance we need when we're going through trials. We don't give up. Now, Wilma, who had polio, she could have gave up. 
She could have started feeling sorry for herself, but she didn't. She persevered through her trials. And every Christian needs to persevere in their trial because first, what God has promised them, the crown of life, and second, which is most important, they love God. Point one, you should patiently endure trials. Point two, you should never blame God for your temptation. Let's read verses 13 to 15 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now James switches topics from trials to temptation. The same Greek word for trials is also used for tempted. One is a noun and the other one is a verb. The difference is not in the word itself. The difference is this. Your reaction. The response. In other words, if I respond and this is important, please understand this and get this. If I respond to the trial with trust and obedience to God I'll patiently endure it with joy but if I respond to the trial with anger and disobedience that trial now becomes a temptation to sin listen you can have the same exact trial in other words, the same set of circumstances and respond to it with understanding that God will not only see you through it, but mature and perfect you through it. Or, you can go through the same trial and become angry and bitter and blame God. Here, James is warning us against the second one. It is absolutely ludicrous for a Christian that has tasted time and time again the love of God and would now think that somehow God wants them to fail. Every trial you're going to encounter is going to have this. It's going to have a temptation. It doesn't mean you have to give into it. It does mean you're going to be tempted. For example, I go through a trial. God allows me to go through a trial with sickness or financial difficulty or the loss of a loved one and can be tempted to question God's love for us or his concern and care for us and could tempt us to do some unethical things to ease our discomfort. James wants his hearers, that's us, to resist that. And he wants his hearers to persevere on the trial so they don't succumb to the temptation to sin. And when we are tempted, James insists that we don't Blame God. Now you might be saying, well, I'd never blame God. You'd be surprised how sometimes, you may not blurt it out, but how sometimes when we're going through a hard time and we're not responding right, in our hearts, we may not be telling our neighbor, we might be telling the pastor or this person or that person, but in our hearts we're blaming God. God may send trials to purify our fate and help us to become Christ-like, but he never tempts us to sin. Matter of fact, Paul told the Corinthian church that he makes a way of escape. So we don't have to sin in our temptation. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, sinful man has always tried to blame God for their sin. When God confronted Adam after the fall, he blamed God for giving him Eve. Adam, where are you? Lord, I was afraid. 
because I was naked. And who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat when I told you you could eat every tree in the garden except this one? And then what does he, what does he do? Blames God. The woman you gave me, Lord, gave it to me and I ate. And what does the woman do? Satan made me eat it. You know, so we, we always play the blame game. You should never blame God for your temptation because, number one, God cannot be tempted with evil. Why? Because he is untouched by evil. He is pure. He is righteous. He is holy. He has no sin nature. We have a sin nature. Did you know that? Did you know that you have a sin nature? That's called original sin, that we carry the sin nature around, that happened in the God. We were all rolled up into Adam. Our DNA was in Adam. And we have a sin nature. That's why we sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You see the difference? So God cannot be tempted with evil. He has no sin nature. So, so evil cannot tempt him. Uh, because God cannot be tempted with evil, God doesn't tempt. He cannot tempt. He will never tempt his people at any time. Again, this doesn't mean that God doesn't allow testing and temptation. He will allow testing to strengthen the believer. And when we respond negatively to the trial, he allows the temptation, obviously, because we decided not to trust God. But make no mistake about this. God will never lure you into sin. Do you know why? Because temptation comes from our own sinful desire. Let's read verse 14 again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James says each person is lured and enticed. In other words, a person is tempted when he is drawn away and trapped by his own lust or evil desires. Enticed is sometimes it's translated this, like this. To make sinning look attractive or to make sin taste good or to wave sin in front of a person's nose. Now some Greek scholars say the word entice carries the idea of catching a fish by bait. Now and everybody, you know that I don't have to tell you, I'm a big fisherman. And I have tons of laws that I built up over the years. I mean I have, when I go out fishing and I stand, actually yesterday I was fishing, and I have my law bag, I have all different kinds of laws for all different situations. And the law is to fool the fish. It's to attract the fish. So when the... I I like fishing for striped bass. That's my main thing. Um, So when the striped bass, they're predators, they're hiding. When they see the law, they think it's a bait fish. And as my law is passing them, boom, they go after it because they're enticed. As the law passes the fish... The fish is lured away or dragged away from its hiding spot, and then he begins to follow the lure, enticed, and finally strikes it, and bam, it's hooked. I love when that happens. I mean, I love that. Yesterday, I couldn't fool the fish. I don't know if it's the laws. I caught not nothing. I didn't even get a tap, a bump. I was, I was with my friend George, and we, we caught nothing. We had a good time anyway. We had good fellowship and nice, big, hearty breakfast. But, you know... And the same thing happens to us when we're tempted by our own evil desires. Temptation comes our way and we're lured away by it and enticed and bam, we're trapped in the web of sin. And that's what James is saying here. 
Do you want to know where your temptation comes from? It comes from your own evil desires that lure you and entice you to sin. Just like the attractive law that the laws and entices the fish to strike and now it's caught. Every last one of us when we are tempted to sin is not from the outside but from within. A man or a woman might be tempted to lust after another woman or man. The temptation to sin with the other person is not so much from the other person, but from the lust of their own heart. If, if the man or woman didn't have a sinful nature, they would never be lured and enticed because there is nothing in them that desires to sin. That's why even though, you ever think about this? Even though Jesus was tempted in every way we are, he never sinned, nor could he. He had no sinful nature. We have a sinful nature, so we're lured, like the fish going after the, the law. We're lured away by our own sinful desires. He had no sinful nature. His temptations came outwardly. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, all Satan could do was tempt Jesus outwardly. Now, I know there's controversy saying that Jesus could really have sinned. There is some controversy on that. I'm not going to get into it because we'd be here for another hour. But um, Jesus, even if he could have sinned, he would not have sinned. He had no sinful nature. There was nothing sinful in Jesus that could lure and entice him to sin. Every one of us gets tempted because we're lured from our inward evil desires. But there's also different degrees for each of us. We need to be careful not to minimize someone's temptation. Because we're not being tempted in the area doesn't mean it's not real for someone else. Exegetical commentary on James says this. What one person finds as an intense temptation, another person may never experience as even a faint enticement or vice versa. Temptations are tailored to the individual. And so we as believers must never belittle a person for struggling with something we think as inane, meaning, you know, silly. Instead, we must realize that each of us has particular battles nuanced specifically for us and we need to give both grace and exhortation to one another to stand firm in times of testing conversely we must always flee temptation regardless of how little it may seem to us these inner longings James says busily work to pull us away from the Lord also be careful to minimize casual but sinful thoughts you know we could you know think that these little thoughts that we get mean nothing. We should not only flee temptation as 2 Timothy says, but understand that it has eternally consequences. After each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, James tells us in verse 15, let's look at that, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, gives birth or brings forth death. James is telling us this. He's saying evil desire produces sin. And sin produces death. And this is the language that James is using of childbirth. A, a person entertains the desire, right? A thought, you get a thought in your mind and you start entertaining. We've all been there, we all know it. And the desire becomes pregnant with sin. And then the desire now gives birth to sin. You know, we, we could start with a thought, now it becomes sin because we're thinking about it and possessing whatever 
we want in our hearts, and now it's part of us. And then we begin to act on it. It gives birth to sin. And if left unchecked, it will produce death. Dr. David Nystrom says, James wants us to know that sin, when mature, is a fixed habit. If we are not weary, cautious, we can become trained in evil, which is a sobering thought. None of us want to be trained in evil. We're trained in evil already. We want to be untrained. Now, we must never, ever think that temptation itself is a sin. Otherwise, Jesus was sinning. Because it says, he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. The temptation is not a sin. Jesus in humanity was tempted every single way we are. The sin is when we give in to the temptation. In other words, I could pass a car dealer and see a car of my dreams and get thoughts. I could never afford that car, but you know what? I want to steal it. Maybe a thought will come. This is hypothetically. A thought will come to your mind. Let's steal that car. But, but you, you say to yourself, oh, I'm a Christian, I, I, we're not going to steal. And the, the thought goes out of your mind. The temptation wasn't a sin. But if I thought about it, and thought about it, and now started plotting in my heart how I'm going to steal that car, now it becomes sin. And Jesus said it this way when he's talking about lusting after another woman. He said, if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. So... The temptation itself, not a sin. What we do with the temptation, do we give into it? And by the way, this is not about big temptations only. It's not about adultery. It's not only, I should say only, about adultery or, or stealing or covetousness or, or, or murder. The little temptations that we give in today by day that shape who you are today. And who I am today. Sin, James says, eventually leads to death. What is he talking about here? So James really is giving us a general principle here. That sin leads to death. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel tells us the soul who sins shall die. As a matter of fact, Jesus told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of, of good and evil... You will die. And what happened? Immediately when they ate the fruit, they died spiritually. And then eventually physically. And that's why we die physically. You know, every time I go to a wake, a funeral, or if I'm in the hospital, I just see God's word so clearly. Like people are just fading away. All of us. We all, you know, when we're born, we begin to die. The dying process starts. It's from sin. Not necessarily from personal sin. It's just from sin that entered the human race. Be of good cheer. If you're redeemed, you will live forever. James might be also referring to Christian premature death. We see that when Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When he's talking about communion. The Lord's Supper. Some of them were coming to the Lord's Supper with indifference. And we're going to have Lord's Supper today. We should never ever approach the Lord's Supper with indifference. And Paul said to the, the Corinthian church, that's why some of you, they were saved. They were going to heaven. But he said, that's why some of you are sick. And that's why some of you have fallen asleep, meaning death. 
I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians succumb to the temptation and begin to justify their sin and just watch their lives destroyed. We, when I first got saved, we had this good friend. He was such a great guy. I loved this guy. He was a musician. We were all different, different kind of bands. We, we belonged to a pretty fairly large church. And I mean, back then, I mean, we used to go out in the streets and preach the gospel. And I mean, it was, it was just awesome. And this one particular man, he was great, but he had a problem. He would be tempted. He was a drug addict. And he, at times he would fall back into drugs and he would come out of it. He would be so remorseful. And you knew he was genuine. And finally, drugs overtook him. The temptation overtook him. And he finally, I believe he was saved. I just believe he had a premature death. And I think that can happen a lot if we're not very careful. Number one, you should patiently endure your trial. And by the way, just let me doesn't mean every time we slip and fall, God's going to kill us. You know, I'm talking about a person who is consistently, consistently falling into the temptation. Sometimes God just takes them early. You know, I'm not the one to stand there and judge. I don't know if my friend, if God did that to him. I don't know. And it was others too. But that can certainly happen because the scriptures tell us that can happen. So, Point one, you should patiently endure your trial. Point two, you should never blame God for your temptation. And point three, you should not be deceived. Let's read verses 16 through 18. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James could be speaking of the previous verses about not being deceived. In other words, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, about your sin or your circumstances, especially blaming God for your temptation. Or, James is speaking about verses 16 to 18. I think that's more or less what he's speaking about. Where James is speaking about the good and perfect gifts that come from God. I, I think it can be both. We can look at it both ways. But we, you know, we must not be deceived or let us straight thinking God is tempting us to do evil. But also we should not be deceived because God gives us good and perfect gifts and we can trust him. And I think more or less that's what James is saying. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Contrary to accusing God for your temptation, you should only credit God for the good and the perfect, lacking in nothing gifts that he gives us. And he also gives, it, gives, it, gives them to us generously. Everything that God gives his children, you a Christian today, raise your hand. Every gift that he gives you is good. He doesn't give you bad gifts. Jesus said in Matthew 11, If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Now I'm a father. And I give my, and, and, you know, outside of Christ I am evil. And I always give good gifts to my children. Because I love them. And any of you who are parents know that. How much more, who God is perfect, holy, and righteous, give us good gifts. And I mean, he gives us good gifts. 
Dr. Kent Hughes says, God, God's giving is totally good and nothing evil can possibly come from above. Some of those good gifts uh, we learned two weeks ago when I preached. Wisdom, when we're going through a trial, it's a good gift. That's a good gift to ask God. You're going through a trial? God, I need your wisdom. And he gives it to you. And he gives it to you generously. And some of them, salvation in verse 18, which we're going to read. God doesn't give us temptation so we could sin and die, but he gives us good gifts so we can live and grow. Again, these good gifts come from above and come down to us from the Father, James says, from the Father of lights. Three things I want you to see why you can trust God as the good and perfect gift giver. Number one, he's the creator. He's the father of lights. He's the creator. Again, verse 17 again. Every good and perfect, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. James calls him the father of lights. The God who created the heavens and earth also created the sun, the moon, and the stars. We see that in Genesis 1. But these created lights are fading. God created them that way. They're not going to last forever. Do you know that? We're not even... We're, we're created. We, we begin to die as soon as we're born. We're always changing. But God's character will never fade. It's eternal. His love, His power, His justice, His omniscience, His righteousness, etc. will never vary or change. The created lights are fading But God doesn't change. And that's the second reason why you can trust God as the good and perfect gift giver. God doesn't change. Every created thing goes through changes. That's what characterizes creation. Just like the the unchangeable characterizes God. There will never be a change in God's character. You can rest assured. God is what theologians call immutable. Immutable means unchangeable. God is unchangeable. James says it like this. There is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, the sun and the moon, they give light in various intensities. Do you ever get up in the morning and it's a clear day? And you get out and you walk out and, and your shadow is long because the sun is down? And it's just rising. And then by the middle of the day, what happens? The, the, the shadow is, there's hardly any shadow because the, the sun is overhead. And then, at the end of the day, it really casts a long shadow. It's constantly changing. But there's never a change in God. He's constant. He doesn't shift. He doesn't change. The light of his truth and holiness will always remain constant. The Lord said in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. The writer of Hebrews 13.8 said Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because God never changes, guess what? His truth never changes. And the third and final reason why you can trust God as a good and perfect gift giver is God is responsible for your salvation. Contrary, and I hear this, to not being responsible for your temptation. He's not responsible for your temptation, but he is responsible for your salvation. Verse 18 again. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
This is his good and perfect gift to you if you're a Christian. Salvation. God of his own will saved you. Paul makes that clear in 2 Timothy 1.9 when he said, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And guess what the means of our salvation is? The word of the truth, the gospel. No one gets saved apart from the gospel. People ask me that all the time. Can someone be saved by this or that? No. No one gets saved apart from the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. First Peter, um, first chapter, 23rd verse, Peter said, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word. That's the word of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first century Jewish believers heard the gospel, they received Christ, and James is telling them it was God's will that saved them through the word. They were now the first fruits that James says. First fruits in the Old Testament was the initial portion of the harvest crop that was offered to God before the rest of the crop was harvested. That's what they did. They offered the first fruits to God. And now these Jewish believers, James is saying, <clears throat> what he's saying, let me find my place again, I lost it. Modern technology. And, 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 and what James is saying now is they are the first fruits of the first generation of Christians which many more would follow. And of course, 2,000 years later, many more people have been redeemed by the word of truth. So, they were like a prototype. And, and just as Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, Paul told that to the Corinthian church, and it guarantees that all that who die in Christ will also be resurrected. These early believers and Christians today are the guarantee of what is to come, which is the recreation of the entire world. They were a prototype, and I think we are a prototype too of what's going to happen. We're, we're created new in the image of God. And one day, there's going to be a new heaven, and a new earth. And we Christians in 2020 are sort of the first fruits for our generation. And that more will come after us. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Being a Christian now for this many years, I can't I can tell you that not only do I know Christians who have questioned God's goodness, but I myself have felt the disappointments because of my lack of understanding of his goodness when going through trials. And I've felt and I've been on that side of it. And I know. You know, I hope I've learned after all these years that I don't question God's goodness anymore. Amen. And I'm grateful that God used James to show us that the first century Jewish believers who were being persecuted had the same shortcomings that we have to doubt the goodness of God in times of sorrow. I'm just so grateful for this book and I'm so grateful for this passage of scripture. He had to tell them to stop being deceived. Temptations to sin are not from God, but good gifts are. And 2,000 years later, it speaks the same truth to us, doesn't it? Let me conclude here. God, through his word, 
and his spirit gives you reason, hope, and power to endure trials patiently. God, through his word and his spirit, gives you reason, hope, and power to resist temptation. And if through weakness you succumb to the temptation, you would not blame God for your own weakness and quickly repent. God, through his word and his spirit, gives you reason, hope, and power not to be deceived that God gives good gifts to you as opposed to giving you bad things which causes you to sin. Let me end with this. The next time you're going through a trial, ask God for wisdom to help you to respond to that trial with trust and avoid temptation to sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that I know speaks to all of our hearts because we all go through trials and we're all tempted at times. Help us to resist temptation. Help us not to be deceived to think that you would give us anything bad but to only give us good gifts that help us to grow and to flourish in the kingdom. In Christ's name, I pray, amen.